today's episode of the Road to Cinema podcast, we'll take a look inside the documentary How, about the life and career of Oscar-winning filmmaker Hal Ashby, which premieres at this year's Sundance Film Festival and directed by our guest, Amy Scott. Hal Ashby is the filmmaker behind such 1970s classics as The Landlord, Being There, Harold and Maude, Shampoo, Bound for Glory, and Coming Home. The documentary takes a unique approach inside Hal Ashby's life and career by going through personal journal entries, which are read through the voice of Ben Foster playing Hal Ashby, as well as rare photos and audio from Hal Ashby's archive and never-before-seen interviews with Jane Fonda, John Voigt, as well as cinematographer Caleb D. Chanel and editor Robert Jones, who also served as the uncredited screenwriter on Being There. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can visit and like our Jog Road Productions Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, Instagram at Jog Road Productions. Subscribe to the Jog Road Productions YouTube channel to watch our video interviews with Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, and Ewan McGregor, among many others. And don't forget to subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also write us a nice review under the Road to Cinema podcast on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. And now we join director and editor Amy Scott of the new documentary, Hal, which premieres this week at the Sundance Film Festival. So I thought we could start off by talking about your career as an editor, because for many years before you directed Hal, you were working pretty much full time as an editor. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I lived in Chicago for uh, about 10 years prior to moving to Los Angeles. And uh, I mean, I yeah, started off doing like, retail work <laughs> and then jumped ship and started editing um, smaller projects. The first film that I got a full editing credit on was a film called Nice Bombs, and it was about the Iraq War. as directed by a, a phenomenal filmmaker, um, Usama Al-Shabi, and sort of, I think I learned a lot from Usama, and, we, and, we, and it took my editing career sort of in a more social issue-driven uh, direction. And worked a lot with the Kendling Group and uh, Kartemquin that does that did like Hoop Dream. I mean, well, that was a Steve James company. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. He's one of their uh, directors, uh, Steve James and Gordon Quinn. And um, I actually never edited like a full Kartemquin film, but in Chicago, you all sort of work on each other's projects all the time. Um, and I worked with Bill Siegel, uh, who did the Trials of Muhammad Ali. So it was a long time of. Um, those kinds of documentaries. And then I moved to Los Angeles and everything changed. <laughs> the content move, changed. <laughs> when you moved out here, what was your goal to stay in documentary or were you looking to branch off? I honestly things, was just looking to get to the warm weather and thought <laughs> that whichever way the wind blew at that point, I would follow. Yeah. So, uh, I continued to do documentary work. Um, I did a, I cut a PBS, short or like a half hour special with Shira Piven and it was uh, covering the life of Wayne Kramer from the MC5 sort of focused on his philanthropic endeavors with uh, Jail Guitar Doors that was awesome and I worked a lot with um, Wondrous which is Jesse Dillon's company and they do sort of the same sort of short form it's almost like documentary content sort of um, yeah global social justice causes. So you think I've stayed in, relatively speaking, in in that area, and then occasionally um, 
have cut like a random comedy or something <laughs> along the way. So at what point did you realize that you wanted to direct a feature? Had that always been in your mind through I, the years editing? It has, yeah. Um, I've, uh, let's see, really early on in Chicago, I, I shot, I am hesitant to say that I directed even because I had no idea what I was doing, but I did make a short film um, early on in my career as a director, and that followed... It followed three transgender male to female women as they fought to pass anti-discrimination legislation in Illinois. I mean, 10 years ago, it was now it, it would be a different story and everyone would be on, on board. But at the time, it wasn't uh, as, as chic of a topic. And so it was really, um, I learned a lot on that film. So, But I knew I wanted to direct and I knew I would come back and I would know what I was doing and not shoot on... 10 different cameras, you know, 140 hours and try to cut it myself. So how did uh, your attention go to Hal Ashby? Had that been a filmmaker that had been an influence on you for a while? Yeah, I think I always had um, sort of a quasi-obsession with 70s filmmakers, just the aesthetic of um, the, the sort of personal, narrative, intimate stories that, that 70s filmmakers made, but on top of that, just... just the lighting and the minimalist um, music, and you know the film, the film stock in the seventies was yeah. gorgeous. So There's yeah, a, I, like a naturalism <clears throat> to everything. That completely, you would see. definitely. I mean, you know, like Gordon Willis. Like, there's so many cinema. Uh, Caleb Deschanel and Haskell Wexler. All those guys. They just they knew how to shoot naturally and, and minimally. And um, so I always studied that kind of filmmaking, and and really just found myself in love with that era. Um, I think I first wanted to make a film about John Cassavetes and then quickly realized that that had already been done. There was two other docs on him that were also, you know, great films. And then I read uh, Nick Dawson's book, Being Hal Ashby. Uh, it was like in 2012. That's a great book. Yeah, you well. have read it. Yeah, yeah it's great. Um, so after that, I, I just sort of did a lot of thinking about about Hal and his life story, and I couldn't put it away. I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's one of those things you're like compelled to do. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I was thinking back on the the genesis of the project for me. I I was I was pretty pregnant with my first child. What year did you begin? Because there was a Kickstarter campaign at one point. So, what was sort of the f the, the first year? First year, <laughs> I was noticing on my Vimeo account it's like for for the ashby movie it's like 2012 so i must have read the book then got in touch with nick and i think we were i convinced the estate that they should let me make a film about him when i was really pregnant in 2013 which is kind of funny when i think about it now like they would even entertain the idea of like i hadn't done anything before i just sort of rolled in their office out in the valley and was like, I'm going to make this so movie. So was that sort of showing them like past material, even like the I didn't have any, I showed him, you know, yeah. I didn't have anything really legitimate. Like if I, I think about if I were them, I would have been like, I don't know, kid, you know, go make something and come back. So, but I, I had to, you know, I had some editing work to show them. But I think, I guess apparently the passion, you know, worked, yeah. <laughs> worked in my favor and, on top of that, I think I was just persistent uh, enough that I didn't go away, and they said, all right, let's let her make the movie. So I did, and we uh, I found my crew and my production partners who have been invaluable, and we started the Kickstarter, yeah, in 2014, and raised money for production, and 
kind of went from there. But it's been a marathon. It's not, it's not a sprint by any means. <laughs> so at the early stages of thinking about making a documentary about Hal Ashby, how did the execution and concept change over time? Or was it sort of yeah. the exact concept you had in mind at the very beginning? Oh, God, no. I mean, I think if there's one word that could sum up my, just my personal journey, it's naive. I was naive about how I thought it would go, the structure, when we would finish, what kind of story we were going to tell. Because um, there's a million ways you can, you know, it's, you can make a, a straight biopic, you can make a, you know, there's a certain sort of formulaic way you could do that. Or you can just explore his films um, and follow that chronologically. Or you can, you know, there's, there's many layers that you can distill and I, it was a snake on its tail for me in terms of finding the story that I really wanted to tell about his life. So that shifted um, in post significantly in the last three years. Um, it's hard to say. I, I think I, I started off thinking, I can shoot, I can film interviews with everyone he ever worked with, and I can have the personal story and the films. And it was just a giant idea that you know, maybe it would work for a four-part series, but it was hard to sell people on that idea. So when you start to distill it down, you know, by design, it's it's reductive. So you've got to find... And, and, and what really... What changed for me is when we... We had done several edits of the film. I think we were at, like, a two-hour cut last year. And then we discovered all these um, AFI audio recordings of Hal talking. I mean, hours and hours. It spanned most of his career. So at that point, um, we had to throw the movie away and start over, essentially. Had you uh, been using the, the letters? That we had been using the letters, yeah. The letters we had the entire time, but then it was then this his actual voice kicked in. And at that point, I was like, yeah. well, <laughs> guys. So you had the opportunity <laughs> to use his authentic voice within there. Yeah, and, so, and, and that changed things. So I was like, well, yeah. let him tell the story. So then it was a process of like, Deleting, you know, at least for the most part, I can say I was, I was nailing the same things that he was talking about. So that was that was reaffirming. Um, but yeah, it was also at the same time like, oh man, this is this is never ending. <laughs> I truly thought this is never going to end. We're going to keep finding things and finding things. So, so yeah. it's sort of like finding so many options based on materials that you find and yeah. just other creative ideas you can yeah, have. Yeah, totally. Really shift things. Totally. And the then the, when you unearth that stuff, it will take, you start to reconsider the scene that you cut around it and go, oh man, that changes, that changes the direction of the, you know, or the, what we're trying to say with the scene. So now we've got to go back and, and really re-examine this section if it's a strong enough archival bit, which we had, we had a lot. And there's a lot that we couldn't put in, so, that we found. Well, what was really uh, surprising for me was how uh, candid you were about Hal Ashby and his thoughts. And, you know, sometimes in films like this, it can be just sort of like a glossy image of what the person is. But yeah. for you, it was a, a really full uh, portrait of him. I mean, was there ever any pushback or you sort of had full control yeah, of how to there was, portray him? Yeah, I think there's always pushback because... Yeah. Um, I wasn't there. I mean, I was like 12 when he died, you know, so I didn't know him. I hadn't, my connection came later in life. But then when you start, you know, speaking to people that knew him intimately and they have their idea of, of his story and yeah. it's like the Rashomon effect, you know, it's like <laughs> where, somewhere in there lies the truth and we have to sort of sit up, uh, up on top and try to 
just, you know, look at everything and distill it. So yes, we did. Um, look, it makes, it makes him a more dynamic person. He has depth. It, you know, he's human. He had, he, he made bad decisions. He was flawed, but that contributed to his films. I mean, it played right into the movies that he made. And I, and I think there's a line in the film where he says he, he tries not to uh, ca- uh, caricaturize, you know, not to, not to make his, his you know, subjects a caricature. They're, cause they're human, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I think that um, we try to do the same thing, you know? He was imperfect, but it lended itself to a more interesting story. What was really interesting was that how like to communicate through letters. I, I think there was yeah. even an interview in the film where someone talks about how he preferred letters over talking on the yeah. phone. Yeah. So some person who could be down the street that he could easily call or see in person, yeah. he would rather just write a letter. I was wondering sort of what do you think employed Well, him to do that? I, you know, that's a, that's a personality uh, thing yeah. right there. And all I can say is when you're in an edit bay, for hours and days and months on end, as he said at one point, he, he didn't leave for seven months. That's a that's a personality trait that you like to hold up, and you like to transmit signals out into the out into the world. And yeah. that it's not exactly a two way. I don't know how he would. I don't know how he would deal with things the way they are right now. With you know, it's constant communication and back and forth i guess on you know <laughs> he's in, yeah i mean he's and, although you know he probably would be a, a fantastic emailer because those letters were hilarious i mean they were ridiculous we the things that he would say to studio heads i couldn't believe it it's like my god this yeah. is who would write like who would write the head of paramount this this r- r- letter like you just you didn't care the art was like you know so important to him and he had to do it yeah. Felt it was, compelled to, I guess. It was interesting, too, how he, he started his career as an editor. He won an yeah. Oscar for editing The Heat of the Night and transitioned into directing, but he never really let go of the editing component yeah. of what, you know, how he worked. I don't know how you could. I mean, yeah. if you know how to... Even We have an amazing assistant editor, and I was joking with my producing partner. We all know, we all like, sit in a tiny room, and we all know how to edit, you know, and, yeah. and someone else is working the keys, and you're like, God, wait, no, no <laughs> t- t- hold on, move over. Let, let me show you real quick how to, you know, this is what I'm trying to say. But I don't think... he When we... Uh, when I was listening to hours and hours of his footage, there was parts where he talked about editing, his editing process you know, with his editors later and, and he would give them full, um, like their alone time to make their first pass of the film, which is super rare. I mean, it's very rare today, but, but to have say, okay, yeah, you guys go ahead and and you cut that first edit. Um, and then I'll come in later and, you know, check it out and we'll talk. But that's kind of like, it's kind of nuts that he that he did that that yeah. he gave him that kind of power and sort of trusted and you wouldn't really think that from sort of his personality yeah and the control that he yeah no so much yeah but i think he was i think for as controlling as he was about the finality of the project i think he was equally dedicated to compromise i mean not compromise um collaboration yeah not compromise <laughs> as we learn later in the film collaboration with his crew so like with haskell and Haskell, they're like behind yeah. Uh, schedule and over budget and bound for glory and Haskell's like I want to try this crazy shot he's like all right try it like that's kind of bonkers I don't know if that would happen today well it's interesting like thematically if you look at through the landlord and Harold and Maude last detail shampoo 
uh, all the way down to Bound for Glory and, and being there. All the films they made through the 70s, thematically they're similar, but yet the characters are all very, very different. Mm -hmm. So what do you think that Howe was really looking for when he was choosing films at that time? It's an interesting question. You know, the characters are different, but they are all men, single men searching for something. So I did notice that, you know, if yeah. you if you look at every single one of them, even up to, you know, Chauncey Gardner, they're all they're all on a journey. Or even sort of isolated in a They're an too. isolated yeah. figure, an isolated man. Some, except, I guess with the exception of Bud, he was a younger man. But they're all looking for something, and they're up against some sort of... They're fighting something, you know, within themselves, or um, it, something issue-driven, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I think I think he... I don't... There's an author in England that just wrote a book. I can't think of the name of it, but it's a, basically asked the question of, you know, is... Hal Ashby and auteur, um, because he made these films that were all, you can't really categorize them. It's not like, oh, he made those kinds of movies, or there was like a, there's not an Ashby style, per se. write the screenplay, per no, se. No, no, no. Yeah. But, but each of the films are, they're unique, um, and I, I think that he chose, I think he, he really went for the, the heart of the story, and if the heart of the story was, you know, something that was really great, then then he made that. I mean, but he worked with, you know, like Robert Town on so many of these projects and Bob Jones. So I think he, I think it was like assembling the right group of artists and then making the best possible film you could make. And it seems like his process was really organic with how he worked with the actors and the rest of the crew. I mean, I was even surprised to learn that a lot of coming home was improvised. They didn't even have a script I know. throughout the production. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And you watch the movie and it feels like there's a complete structure there, but then to hear that is like really shocking. No, we thought that was really funny in that there was no script. I mean, all, everyone we interviewed was like, yeah, no, it was total chaos. <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing. We would, you know, there was, we would all sit in a room together with tape recorders and we'd come up with these lines or, you know, I don't know, we'd rehearse it um, day of, morning of, moment before we turned the cameras on. But then they go and they win an Academy, and then they killed it at the Academy Awards that year. Just crazy. Yeah. Like, you guys were winging it. <laughs> totally winging it. But, I mean, I guess the structure, you know, when the structure's in place and the structure's good and you're comfortable with the artist on board, so he, he, gave, he gave them the latitude to do that. And it worked. Yeah. Almost every time. Until it didn't. <laughs> and then it really didn't. <laughs> I was wondering, the last shot of being there, was that improvised where he puts the umbrella? I think that's, uh, that was improvised when he, Peter Sellers put the umbrella in the water. And yeah, they did thing. a couple yeah. of different endings um, in Hal's recordings. Uh, he describes they had shot where Chauncey's just sort of, you know, the, the first ending, I think he's just sort of walks away into the forest, you know, and he's milling about in the trees. And Shirley MacLaine's like, well, that's, you know, la-di-da kind of a moment. But uh, and, and then he just, he was, he was talking to the author, uh, Rudy Wurlitzer and was just kind of going over this and Rudy's like, you know, what are you going to do? And they just kind of came up with this idea 
and it's not in our film, but Jeff Bridges told it, it was funny. He just relayed it, and his Hal told him the story of it, and he was like, you know, Jeff said that they were like, get that plexiglass and get it over there, throw it in the water, and let's shoot it. And the studios were like, what in the world is this ending? It wasn't in the script, you know. They just went rogue, which is crazy to me that you would have this masterpiece, and you're be you are beholden to some extent, you know, to the studio. Like, here's the script that we're going to shoot with your money. And then you're like, ah, we decided not to go with that ending. <laughs> That's insane. And it changes the whole conception so, of how you viewed the film. Completely. Yeah. You have to go back and you're like, wait, what? what is he trying to say here? And you could think about it forever. So this what makes it a perfect film. So. Yeah. Well, I was curious. I mean, watching the documentary, we see all these filmmakers who were influenced by Ashby, David yeah. O. Russell, Alexander Payne, Jed Apatow, Adam McKay. Mm -hmm. Was that surprising to you at all, sort of how many filmmakers out there were really immersed mm -hmm. in his work and they can see it sort of in their own work? No, it was not surprising. I mean, because I can see it in, in so many uh, contemporary films today, I can be like, it's a it's a crazy wide shot, you know. Like there's some things that how that are so quintessentially Hal Ashby. When you see them, it's really easily recognizable. Um, in you know, in a way, not to say anyone rips anybody off, but as uh, you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, but flattery is the, you know, <laughs> the um, yeah. So I wasn't surprised, and I and so it was oh, easy. Ripping off is the sincerest form of flattery. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and, and not to say they rip things off, but like you know, I would I, we didn't get Wes Anderson because he's I, I think that guy is just constantly filmmaking. <laughs> I don't know if he ever takes a break, but I would have liked to have talked to him too. Uh, just you know, when I, there's sometimes you see shots or or like there's a musical moment, and you're like. That is so Hal Ashby right there. It's just it's hard to put your finger on it, but it's like a it's a shot or it's uh, it's time between characters or, or interpersonal dialogue. It's, and you and it feels really reminiscent. Yeah. So then when we would ask these directors, um, I early on I had an idea of like oh we'll have we'll have one person do a case study of all these films, and that was my that was my pitch. So like uh, with with uh, Judd Apatow, for example, I think we had him do the last detail. Uh, I think anyway, we went in thinking. So it's each filmmaker. Yeah, it's so like Adam McKay. I was yeah. like, I want you to talk about being there because I knew he had just done, um, you know, the financial crisis movie, and I was like, this Adam would be great for that. But with every one of those directors, once we got in there and started talking with them, they were like, oh yeah. I mean, I love this movie, but there's also these moments of this other movie, and so they, yeah. they kind of like would jump around, and um, so that was exciting. I was like, I don't, I don't know if this works, having one person just do one movie because they said really wonderful things, you know, about all the films. So we went from there, but it was nice. I mean, they were so excited, and their excitement, our excitement, and their excitement sort of fed off each other. And well, it was interesting <laughs> in terms of music because now we see so many modern filmmakers use songs as part of the so Wes Anderson, David yeah, Russell. Yeah. They'll all implement a song like a song we love from the Rolling Stones or yeah. from the Beatles. And Hal Ashby was doing that in many of his films, Rolling Stones, or he had Cat Stevens write original music. Right. So he was really in Shampoo had Beach Boys. So is that something that Hal Ashby was really into using sort of contemporary music or just using a song and really putting it like immerse it into the movie. I think that he, and at least all the research that we did and talking to people, I just think he was that kind of a guy that always had his, he was always sort of leading the zeitgeist. Like he knew what was going on precisely at, you know, and during his time, whatever time that was. 
And so, um, well, we found we found correspondence that Neil Young was supposed to do the soundtrack for The Landlord. Really? Yeah, and I guess they may, maybe they did or didn't record a bulk of material. Um, and then for whatever legal reasons, it, it it didn't happen. But I mean, that was you know that's like 1970. So I was like, wow, that would have been like, <laughs> what Neil record would that would have been? You know, it's kind of crazy to think about that. And then and then it was going to be, I think Elton John was was going to be cast as Bud Court and Harold and Maude. And then wow. And then he started listening to Cat Stevens music right before Cat Stevens really kind of blew up. So like he knew these things were happening. Um, he wanted to work with Leon Russell at one point. Um, so yeah, I mean, he was definitely on board. The soundtrack to Shampoo is is like insane. I mean, the fact that they could throw all those songs <laughs> on. And it makes me wonder, like, it must be why Shampoo hasn't been reissued right now. I think right even now. like Sgt. Sar- Pepper was in there too. From oh the yeah, yeah Sgt. Pepper, everything. like Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Like it's wall-to-wall <laughs> unlicensable material <laughs> like how did they pull that off that would be like the budget of a full movie yeah today. i mean and then uh, yeah a big movie so i think that's when we were hunting down all of our like why hasn't criterion put this out i was like oh well that's probably why you can't do that anymore unless you're david or russell david has yeah. like a, a you know he, he he puts picture to music with insect like precision i mean what he does is is breathtaking to me and so yeah that's what we we did talk to david about music so there was just so much that we could talk about it was really difficult to distill it all down yeah that must be sort of a challenge sort of having so much information so many themes to cover but you really have to kind of narrow it in yeah that's just finding our story because i was like we could just we could just make a film about filmmaking like it sort of became that and i do think that's one of the parallel narratives that runs through our film is like this is a film about filmmaking this is the craft this is the the highs and the lows and what happens when you film gets taken away from you because that will happen um yeah. at some point so but i think what's great is that you mixed the personality of the yeah. filmmaker with the films with analyzing the films which is very unique for this type of project um yeah i mean i felt like yeah there was a self-reflexive uh self-reflective <laughs> nature you know i just started after a while i mean i had i have it's been a long it's been five years so i have watched these movies over and over and over and so different things would emerge like that is part of his life so i started to really be able to pull out like oh that that really happened or this 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 is a i mean you can go like way too far and way too literal with things and go you know is this supposed to be this period in Hal Ashby's Drawing life? Like or, yeah. And so we try, yeah. we wanted to shy away from that, but I mean, I do think there's direct parallels that he did. Um, he, he did put himself in his films in one, in some way, or he did quite literally in some shots, but I mean, I think, um, symbolically he did, he was in there. Well, as you talked about sort of the film evolving for you over this long, long period of years, did you have like sort of like a master written document of how you saw things going or what was sort of your, organizational process with so much archival material and interviews that you had to work with oh man i think i you know i've always had a treatment um that i tried to stick to but that that just goes out the window um like i said my my crew and my producers and my collaborators are all just equally uh passionate and creative and intelligent and so we it's it's been fun like we've just We've had a lot of long conversations about 
process and, um, you know, just like I said, like what story we're going to tell. And then sometimes somebody would come like bring this totally new concept to the table and we like pick that apart for a couple of months. <laughs> it was just, it's just, it's kind of been crazy. And I was curious too. I mean, Ben Foster, yeah, his performance in this is excellent. Did you hear his voice bring to life those letters? At what point did he come on, and, and what was his take on Hal Ashby upon oh, reading those? Oh well, he loved him. I mean, I think <laughs> if you've seen Ben Foster's work, you can go, okay, like he gets it. Uh, he gets the letters because those letters are are they're. Um, crazy i mean in a good way but sometimes in a bad way too i just think it takes a special person to really be able to pull out the tone of what hal was trying to say and i've always been a fan of ben's work um but he came on he came on late in the game because we needed to have crystal clear vision about what letters we wanted to include and how we wanted to use them. And I didn't want to waste anybody's time. So my producer, Brian Morrow, he did the voiceover for <laughs> the whole time. So I was always cutting to Brian's that voice. Was and then he was track. my guide. Yeah. I, and I got, I got really used to it. And um, so we were all like, wow, now we have been in the movie and it's, you know, it's finally here. Like we can feel it now. So yeah, Ben was incredible. He, he's, um, He's on a different level, that guy. Yeah, that was an excellent performance he was giving mm -hmm. the film. Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, the later period of Hal's life has always fascinated me, and there's so much mystery around it. You know, he had, had this huge success in the 70s, and then it sort of dipped after being there. What was sort of your take on what happened after being there? Uh, well, I mean, what we try to explain, or not explain, because we can't, but what we try to examine in the third act of our film is that question. It's like, what happened? Um, because I didn't know what happened to him, and I was a big fan. Uh, but I was like, God, did he, what happened after being there? Did he stop making movies? Did he move to Europe, or what? And I think it was the perfect storm of... Um, the studios, you know, it's the, it's the way that the end of the 70s happened with those kinds of films. I mean, when everything sort of went corporate and the companies uh, became conglomerates, you are not going to get the same sort of, um, like, well, financing, A, but the respect for these sort of smaller personal-driven narratives, they're, they're non-existent. And so if you're not making... Jaws or Star Wars. I'm not to say that those weren't great films, too. I love those films. But it's a different kind of a movie, and I don't know if Ashby was able to pull that off. Um, he certainly was trying. He had, a, he had tons of scripts that he was working through and trying to, you know, get these things made. And maybe that was part of the problem. Maybe he was working too fast, you know. But the companies that he worked for, like um, the studios, you know, Lorimar wouldn't release him to direct Tootsie. And I feel like Tootsie would have really been the, you know, the, that would have put him in a different, it would have been a perfect follow-up for being there. Um, and it didn't happen. They took, you know, they took it away from him. And then they took $8 million away from him. Yeah. So it's when you can't fully realize your vision, you know, what do you have left? And yeah, then, it sort you of know. continued to weigh him down. That's Completely. What I yeah, film. because it was, you know, that's who he was. That's what we learned about him was that his art came before everything else. And when they took it away, you know, it was the end. 
And then it was literally the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's excellent in the film, the, uh, the eulogy or the memorial service that mm-hmm. you have, you know, Warren Beatty and mm-hmm. Bud Cord and so many people who worked with him. I thought that footage really worked so well in encapsulating the whole film in a way. Yeah, thanks. That was um, we didn't know what to do with that footage. You know, like we had it. We were we were kicking it around for for years. Like, what? How do we do this? You know, you, do we just have it at the end or take it through the movie? I don't know. But there were so many people that spoke at that memorial that we you know we we couldn't use in the movie or we you know we just ran out of time, but. Pretty sure Sean Penn like stole a street sign, like an Ashby street sign, and, <laughs> and drug it into the. Yeah, he brought DG. it. Yeah, he yeah. brought it, and wow. so there's a shot of it. Jeff Bridges is at the podium, and it's like, ah, oh, it's crazy. But um, yeah, that that's sad because I, I guess for all intents and purposes, that was his, you know, funeral. That was his memorial. So that was the, that was it. Okay. It's pretty powerful footage. Yeah. And uh, now you, you're premiering at Sundance coming up. Was we that, are. Uh, are you excited about that? I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly. Um, yeah, I've been there. I was there once before uh, with the director, Tim Rattilli. He made a really great film called All My Friends Are Funeral Singers. And so I just kind of was like helping out, editing random things for him. And so I got to kind of check out the madness of the festival. And it was uh, formidable. Wow. So I'm really excited. I think that... This film is, um, I think it's perfect for, I, I hope that everybody will watch it, but I know that film lovers are really going to dig it. So it's exciting to me to be able to bring it there to people that will take it and, and really you know, really listen, pay attention, and, and not just his story, but sort of the more craft-oriented parts of the film. I think it'll resonate there. So yeah. we're, we're really excited. I thought it was excellent how you did immerse sort of Hal's personal filmmaking style throughout the entire project, which is incredible. His 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 filmmaking style in terms of well, how he liked to edit, how he saw sort of you know through those AFI oh, yeah, lectures, definitely, um, yeah, yeah. He never stopped. I mean, he never he never never stopped until until he had to. So. And do you guys have distribution at this moment? Not or? at the moment, but yeah. I guess it's all systems forward so we're really excited i'd like it to play everywhere and um you know i'm from oklahoma so i'd like my family and friends to watch it and be able to get something out of it there not just in not just in film-centric communities thanks for listening to the road to cinema podcast we'll see you next time